Hey everyone, it's Tom Horrigan, the Deputy Chief Communications Officer here at BNY Mellon. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of our Perspectives podcast series where we bring you the leaders and influencers who are shaping our financial world, our industry, and the world beyond. We have another fantastic episode for you today. It's actually the second part of a conversation that took place between Hanny Kablawi, the Chairman of International here at BNY Mellon, and Admiral Jim Stavridis the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the first part of that conversation, I highly encourage you to do so. Hanny and Admiral Stavridis talk about how leadership and character are traits that endure successfully in this world that's changing all around us. It's a fascinating conversation and available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. In this episode, in part two, Hanny and Admiral Stavridis talk about the leadership role that the private sector can play in bringing about meaningful change, not just for the benefit of shareholders, but for the other stakeholders that matter to any business, your clients, your employees, your suppliers, and your ecosystem. They also discuss, on an individual level, how to constructively find common ground with people that you might have a different perspective with or who you might disagree with. Stavridis also sheds light on his many experiences from teaching young graduate students in the classroom at Tufts to leading soldiers in the military. And finally, they both talk about how life sometimes resembles the culmination of a series of books. It's just a really interesting listen on a number of levels. Admiral Stavridis also talks about his book writing process, how he approaches uh, writing. And of course, he's coming out with his 10th book early next year. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And I want to thank you for tuning in. We're going to get right to it. As always, Uh, listen, rate, review. Uh, We'd be grateful. It really matters in the podcasting world. So tell us what you think on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We do want to hear from you. You can, of course, find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We'd be grateful if you'd share your feedback with us. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And we'll try to make this better for you going forward. All right, let's get to it. Admiral, um, I want to bring it on to the uh, private sector uh, for a couple of minutes here. Um, What role can leadership in the private sector play in the context of this conversation that we're having? Um, Mega trends, major risks, and and presumably a social responsibility where companies rekindle their purpose and allow it um, to to the point of your book actually sailing true north allow it to be their true north as they carry on the activities that they that they look to carry on but I'm, I'm interested in trying to draw some threads across all of that with the private sector as an actor in this play well, let's let's start by uh, imagining an iceberg, okay? So an iceberg, as you know, um, has a jagged portion that is above the waterline. And then below that is this massive, massive body of ice. You know, the Titanic sailing along saw the little jagged part, tried to avoid it, but was ripped apart by that massive body underneath. And and here's my point. Uh, The government is that little tip of the iceberg. 
the private sector is the mass. And therefore, if we're going to solve any of these problems, we have to involve the private sector, in my view. And so I'm very encouraged at the number of firms that are uh, focusing on ESG, focusing on diversity, are cooperating with the government in practical ways, are working closely um, in what could be called uh, doing well by doing good things. Um, and, and by the way, I want to stipulate that corporations exist to create profits for shareholders. That's called capitalism. It is a good thing. It is what lifts the mass of people out of poverty, for example, over the last 20 to 30 years. We can't throw away the idea, nor can we imagine that um, corporations are going to become like large Peace Corps volunteer centers. But corporations have a not insignificant, and I would say, again, back to the mass of the iceberg, over time, a very important role to play. Let me give you two very practical examples. Let's talk about cyber and cybersecurity. We are never going to protect ourselves as a nation, nor as any other nation, without engaging the private sector significantly. The, the government of the United States or of any other nation cannot do it by itself. So how do you do that? I'll give you a practical example from the world of banking. As you probably know, uh, many of the large banks have come together to create something called the FSARC. That stands for Financial Services Analysis and Resilience Center. It's a private sector entity funded by the large banks. It's headed up by a, a brilliant man named Scott DePasquale and his charter is to work in the financial services sector and then coordinate with the government. So he's working with the CIA, the DHS, the Department of Treasury across that line of cybersecurity. So here I'd say the banking industry, <clears throat> and by the way, I, I love the tagline of BNY Mellon, consider everything. You've got to do that if you're going to be a big bank. You've got to look at cybersecurity. And I would argue that model, Hani, can be applied to the electric grid in the country, which is made up of thousands of small grids, the natural gas grid, the water grid. You can live without electricity a long time. You're going to last about three days without water. All of that critical infrastructure cannot be just defended by the government. It's going to require the engagement of the private sector. So that's one example. And then secondly, energy. There is no way the government is going to simply solve the problems we face of global warming, climate, and energy. That has to be done collectively with the private sector. And Vice President Biden got a lot of heat for his comments at the debate last week talking about kind of unwinding the oil industry. Hey, newsflash, the oil industry is unwinding itself. They know where this is going to end up. And therefore, they are on the leading edge of creating new technology batteries, finding cleaner sources of energy, a thousand things we could talk about. So I think that's a second area, uh, climate and energy, where the private sector is going to 
outpace the government markedly, and that's a good thing. Those are but two examples of many, many more we could talk about. Yeah, and I like to I like to think about the role of the private sector as extending well beyond the shareholder as stakeholder. So stakeholders include clients, include vendors, absolutely include the employee base, and definitely includes the communities in which we all live, work, and serve. And if we do take a broader perspective of stakeholdership, I think um, it becomes easier to consider the role of the private sector in, um, in, in, in leadership in a world like this. So let me, let me pick up on that yes. point, Hani, yeah. very quickly, because there's a third example that is staring us in the face. <clears throat> and it's dealing with COVID and dealing with the pandemic. And this is the idea of um, how much are these vaccines going to cost? How are they going to be distributed? What is the profit motive? But also back to uh, doing good and doing well, um, it's pragmatically in the interest of corporations to ensure that this uh, pandemic does not destroy the emerging markets. Why? Because that's a market. Key word, market. So finding a path for the government and the private sector to work together to help alleviate these challenges, especially in the emerging markets, I think is a, a third example we can point to. Agreed. How, how do you approach um, a conversation with someone um, whose opinions and views you disagree with to try and bring them over to understand your perspective and perhaps even adopt your uh, point of view. Yeah, let me let me give you two examples because I think this is a fundamental life skill uh, for anybody. And I learned it relatively late in life, I'm sorry to say. Um, I was always, like many people, someone who was very proud of my ability to out-argue anybody. And, you know, it's a Greek uh, quality and, you know, uh, two Greeks, three opinions, you know, it's, you know, you know, this storyline of the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, but when I got to NATO, I realized, you know, that approach just is not going to work. Here I had 28 nations. And what I, what crystallized for me was that if I was going to win the argument, if you will, about any operational aspect, with nations as different as Iceland and France, as Bulgaria and Spain, I was gonna have to adopt a different approach. So I think you start those conversations by learning about the person with whom you're gonna have the conversation. What's their background? Where were they born? What languages do they speak? What books do they read? What are their views? What is the history of their nation, the history of their people, the history, in some cases, of their civilization? When I went to Ankara as a Greek American to Turkey, believe me, I had to know my Ottoman history. Um, you have to start by really learning about a culture. And then a second good thing to do, even before you start the conversation, show respect to that culture. Example, 
Um, I was invited to, by my French counterpart, to a very famous wine tasting in Burgundy, Bourgogne in French. And it was at the Clos de Vigeau, which is a, a beautiful a structure. It's the heart of the French wine industry. Now, let me tell you, as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, I had a lot of things that were on my list that needed to be done before going to a wine tasting, as much as I enjoy wine. But I thought to myself, no, here's a chance for me to show deep, true respect to the culture of France. So I went in uniform, gave a speech in French about why NATO and great wine go together. It was a creative speech. Only after you do all of those kinds of things, honey, can you start to have the conversation about how you can change somebody's mind. And then finally, to, to close on this, I'll jump back to the United States and make another point about someone who's very, very good at this. The person I met along my road of life who could use those kind of tools and techniques beautifully was a woman named Condi Rice, who was the national security advisor for President Bush. She's a conservative Republican and then was secretary of state for President Bush. Uh, when she was in those roles, I was the senior military assistant to the secretary of defense, a guy named Don Rumsfeld. And Kaboom, a lot of disagreements, a lot of arguments. And, and at the beginning, Colin Powell was the Secretary of State. Rumsfeld and Colin Powell were constantly arguing about everything. They really saw the world very differently. What I learned watching Condi Rice, who was the National Security Advisor, was the value of a mediator. If you are in a position where you can't agree with somebody else, look for a mediator and look for one like Condi Rice, who starts every conversation with, what can we agree on today? And then starts to edge in to the disagreements. She's professional quality, gold standard judgment, but also has the tactics, techniques, and procedures of mediation down. So there's two very quick ideas based on my own life and times. Yeah, and understanding the motivations, which I think is embedded in everything you're saying here, right? Why, why does a person come from the place or the perspective that they come from? What is the background to your point? Uh, where do they come from? Um, and why do they hold the views that they hold? And, and um, meeting them more than halfway towards their perspective and then walking them back uh, is go is always going to be a more successful strategy than uh, the butting of heads, presumably. I completely agree. And I'll, I'll give you an example that we chatted about from my own life. <clears throat> and people sometimes ask me, you know, Admiral, why are, why are you so in favor of refugees in the sense of why I believe, as I do, that more countries should be adopting refugees? Well, if you wanna have that conversation with me, you need to understand that my grandparents were refugees coming from what is today Izmir, what was then Smyrna in the 1920s. And they barely escaped with their lives. They were ethnically Greek, but citizens of the Ottoman Empire. And they came to America. That gave me a lot of, not only sympathy for the plight of refugees, but an appreciation 
of what refugees, when they become citizens, bring to our nation. Knowing that about me, before we get into a conversation about the role of our nation in dealing with those who wish to come here, would be very helpful to somebody. And as a refugee, son of refugees myself, I can wholeheartedly agree with all of that, uh, Admiral. Uh, that's a story for another day. Um, Admiral, is it easier to uh, teach soldiers or grad students? <laughs> <laughs> right. So <clears throat> I spent, uh, you know, well over 30 years uh, teaching soldiers and sailors and airmen. And then I left the military and became the dean of the, the top school, I'll say, of uh, international relations graduate school called the Fletcher School at Tufts University. And I'll start by saying the president of Tufts University, who hired me to be the dean of this wonderful graduate school, wonderful man, Tony Monaco, uh, he was asked, you know, Mr. President, why did you hire a military guy to come run one of your graduate schools? And President Monaco said, because I wanted one dean that knew how to follow orders. I thought that was a, a pretty good line that kind of illuminates the difference between the military and higher education, which cannot be two different planets. You know, this isn't Mars and Venus, this is Pluto and the sun. Um, so um, the answer to the question is there are uh, easier aspects, certainly, to teaching people in the military. Um, they show up wearing the same outfit. That's why they call them uniforms. They listen respectfully at all times. They uh, are very intelligent, uh, but they will go into the conversation with a predisposition to try and absorb in a predisposition to somewhat be in agreement. That's the nature of the military. No one should mistake that for independence, for a quiet, respectful challenge, but it's a fairly benign classroom environment. Graduate students, kind of the other end, and I suspect many on this call have been graduate students. First of all, just getting them to show up can be a challenge. Secondly, they come with a predisposition to challenge everything the professor has to say. They are often very, uh, very much highly intelligent, but also can be highly emotional about their views. And so um, there are pleasant aspects of being in both those classrooms. I mean, we all love a challenge. Uh, graduate students, I thought, were challenging ultimately very rewarding to teach, especially as a dean, where I just, you know, kind of dropped in now and again. I didn't have to have teach three classes a semester. But in the, no. in the world of the military, I will say, um, it's a very respectful atmosphere. Um, and I'll close by saying, one of the great aspects of life is that you get to kind of reinvent yourself as you go along. And for everyone listening to this call, I'd encourage you to think about What's the next book on my shelf? Because your life is a series of books. At the end of the day, like the books behind Hani, you get to think back on the different books that were part of your life, your 
graduate school days is a book. Your first job is probably a book. The second big career move you made, it's a book. Sooner or later, you'll have a book that's very different from the, the first seven or eight. That's what going to higher education was like. And that's what going to private equity was like for me over the last couple of years. Whole new book, and I'm enjoying it as well. So, uh, so I'm gonna pick up on two things you said there, and I think we have we have time just for these two. So, one is um, you you're now nine or ten books in, is that right, Admiral? Ten. Ten. The, the How have book, you? The tenth book. Let me just say this, if I can. The tenth book comes out in March. Right. And, it, and I'm glad you're sitting down. My tenth book is a novel. <laughs> wow. So, so to that point, though, how have how have you chosen the topics that you wanted to focus on in the ten books? And once you've decided on a topic, how 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 do you get about the process of of writing it? Uh I pick the topics using the most fundamental maxim of writing that I know, which is know what you write, what you know about. I think a lot of people try and imagine things. Um, and fair enough, uh, for me, um, I have always tried to write about things that I know a great deal about because that's, I think, the first thing that an author offers a reading public. Secondly, related to that, but different, write what you're interested in. Write something about which you are passionate. So for me, my first three or four books were about being a mariner, about sailing ships, about tactics at sea, about leadership in the crucible of military life and combat operations. As I moved along and my own life opened out, became more senior and became very involved in diplomacy and uh, government relations and worked in Washington. As I got into those world, I became uh, fascinated by the idea of leadership and character. And so those were the next several books, including the one that we've talked about, Sailing True North. Now, as I mentioned, I have always felt the urge to write a novel. And <clears throat> as opposed to writing a novel, some beautiful novel uh, about a family living on a farm in Iowa about which I know nothing. Um, my novel is about the US and China. It starts in the South China Sea. It starts with an incident, an unintended consequence, and it moves forward from there. It is a cautionary tale about how devastating a conflict with China could look. The title of the book is a year. It's 2034. So it's set 14 years from now in the future. And uh, if you Google 2034 Stavridis, it'll pop right up. Comes out in March. I don't mean to make this an infomercial. Uh, I mention it in the context that my own writing, like my own life, has moved on. And if, I if this novel does well and I enjoy it, Hani, my next novel will be about private equity and banking and how the two of them fit together or not. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you, Admiral. So, um, and we do have time for, for one more because I am going to go back and, and revisit something 
you said um, just a, a little bit earlier, and that is how how do you develop a critical thinker out of a soldier? Everything you've described earlier was almost in two camps. You have the graduate student who is wired to challenge and develop critical thinking skills, not conformity skills, versus the soldier who's potentially, and maybe I misunderstood your question, um, taking the other side of that trade. No, very How much does so. a soldier then develop into a critical thinker, Admiral? Yeah, this is a great question. And, and the problem for the military is that for centuries, for millennia, when militaries want to improve, what do they do? They practice. They do it again and again. They do repetitive training. And the problem is it works. It's seductive. And if you think about basketball, you can shoot thousands and thousands of jump shots like, like Michael Jordan, and eventually your jump shot will get better. But what I've always tried to do in the military is demonstrate how innovation can make you leap forward because the military mind is all about repetitive training, everybody doing the same thing. So instead of shooting thousands of jump shots, how about if you change your technique, you break your wrist a little bit more, you put backspin on the ball, better shot. How about you get a new pair, you improve the technology in your tennis shoes. You get those Nike Air Jordans, they literally give you a spring. So how do you inculcate that into the military? I'll, I'll, I'll give you three ways very quickly. One is you talk about it all the time. You talk about innovation as a leader in the organization. Number two is create an innovation cell, a small group of people, give them limited but not insubstantial resources and charter them to go out through the whole organization, find ideas, bring them back, and then you talk about them. You give them, in your world, bonuses. You give them medals, maybe. So you create an innovation cell. And then third and finally, what does the military mind really focus on? Your opponent, your enemies. You show your military people how the opposition is innovating. Example, when I was commander U.S. Southern Command in charge of everything south of the United States, the biggest challenge was countering the flow of narcotics. The bad guys, the narcos, built submarines in the jungle of Colombia that they were able to use to move drugs to the United States. Finally, we caught one of those, honey, and I said to my team, bring it to the headquarters. I want to put it right in front of the building. And my team said, oh, great idea, Admiral. It's like a, a war trophy. No, it's an homage. It is a, a monument to our opponents. I wanted everyone in my headquarters, 25,000 people come to that headquarters to look at it and say, those guys are good. Those guys are dangerous. Those guys are thinking. Those guys are creative. Show a military person how innovative the opponent is and you will get his or her attention. There's three quick ideas.
On behalf of BNY Mellon, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. And thanks to the audience for your time and attention. And um, have a great day, Admiral. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hani. Hey, everyone. It's Tom again. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed part two of this conversation between Admiral Jim Stavridis and Hani Kablawi, the chairman of International here at BNY Mellon. Thanks for tuning in, as always. As I mentioned at the top, share your feedback. We're grateful if you download, listen, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can, of course, find us on social media, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Tell us what you think. Give us your ideas for guests or topics you want to hear more about. We've got a great episode coming up in a couple weeks, and we'll talk to you then. Stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, everyone.